I want to talk to you today. This is going to be an interesting sermon, I hope anyway. I want to talk to you today about following a cloud that we cannot see. Now, for me, I've always been interested by clouds because when I was a little kid, I was really scared every time the weather got bad. In fact, when I was in third grade, fourth grade, and a bad storm came, and if I was at school, I just always started crying, and I said, I want my mommy right now. I want to get out of here. And it was a real problem for me at that time in my life, but fortunately, by the time I got to be about a junior or senior in high school, I outgrew that. And No, just kidding. I outgrew it a lot earlier than that. Maybe by about fourth or fifth grade, it was gone. But during that time, for me, it was very, very difficult. And so we were studying in school about clouds, the stratus clouds, the cirrus clouds, the cumulus clouds, the cumulonimbus clouds. And all that fascinated me because I was fascinated with, and at that time, even scared of the weather. Well, fast forward years later, I learned that not only do clouds play a major role in nature, of course, but clouds play a major role in the Bible. And there are many times in the Bible when we read about a cloud. One cloud is called the Shekinah glory cloud of God. Other clouds give us a picture of the very presence of God in our lives. For example, one of my favorite verses is in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to what it says. The clouds are the dust of God's feet. You go outside on a cloudy day and maybe it's raining, you see those clouds up there, no need to be afraid, because those clouds are a reminder to us that God is extra near. He is extra close. Now, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Numbers, we looked at this passage last week briefly, and I said then, we may come back next Sunday and do a whole sermon about following a cloud that we cannot see, and indeed, that's what we're about to do. Now, in Numbers chapter 9, the children of Israel are out there in the desert. They're traveling from Egypt to the promised land. What should have taken 11 days took 40 years because of their complaining, their disobedience, their unbelief. They just didn't act real, really very good out there in the desert. And so they just kept going around in circles. Well, during that time, Moses built a tabernacle, kind of like the room we have today. It would have been smaller than this probably, and, but it would have been different in this respect. The tabernacle was portable. And so as they traveled through that desert, the tabernacle traveled with them, and they could go into the tabernacle, and they could worship God there. And so God designed a method so the people would know when to stay camped at the, whatever location they were at, and when to move forward, and the, the way that God led them was by a cloud. We're going to read this, but I want to just paint this picture, this word picture first. When the cloud came down from heaven and rested on top of that tabernacle, the people knew, stay put. When the cloud moved, the people knew it is time for us to pack our bags and it's time for us to go. So here was the, here's the whole point of this in a, in a nutshell. Whatever the cloud did, that's what the people were supposed to do. Now, let's just read it, Numbers chapter 9, looking in verse 15 to begin with. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. From evening until the morning, it was above the tabernacle like an appearance of fire. And so in the daytime, it was a cloud like we would see today, but at nighttime, it turned into what would be like a cloud of fire. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. 
whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. Now this is kind of the sermon in a sentence or two. If the cloud settled in above where they were, stay put. If the cloud moved, that's your sign. You've got to follow the cloud. Now look in verse 21. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night. Whether the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. So I think I've explained that clearly. I think we all have the point. Whatever the cloud did, that's what the people were supposed to do. Now, I read a story like this, and I think to myself, well, you know, it looks like to me they had an advantage over us. Because when they were trying to determine God's will, all they had to do was look up in the sky, and whatever the cloud did, that's what they did. And I think, God, when I'm trying to make a decision, why can't it be that easy for me, or that visible, or that obvious for me? And it led me, last week, working on the message, to begin this sermon today by asking you a multiple-choice question. I'm going to give you an ABC, and I want you to think about this. Who, which group of people had it the best? Or maybe had it the easiest when it came to knowing what God wanted it to do. Was it the Israelites in the Old Testament who had the cloud? Was it the disciples in the New Testament who had Jesus in the flesh? Or is it those of us who are saved and Christians today who have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us? Which one of those three groups had the advantage? Well, before you answer that question, you ought to think about it. The Old Testament saints had the cloud, it was kind of easy to determine what God's will was. Whether they did it or not, at least they knew what God's will was. The disciples, Matthew, uh, Peter, James, John, they had Jesus in the flesh. So think about this. If you're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee one day, you're out there fishing, and Jesus walks up to you and says, follow me. Well, when Jesus says, follow me, and he starts walking in this direction, now think about this. You may not know where he's going, you may not know the consequences of following Jesus, but at least you would know what your next move was, right? I mean, with your eyes, Jesus says, follow me. He starts walking in this direction. It's pretty obvious your next move is to just start following him. Here he goes. Here I go. I'm following Jesus. So I would say it this way. The Old Testament uh, saints with the cloud, the disciples in the New Testament, they might have had a slight advantage over us in that it was clear what their next move was. But I want you to think about what Jesus said in answer to that question. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, he said to his disciples, he was explaining how he was going to go back to heaven. He would not be with them in the flesh. But he said this, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, I will send my spirit who will live on the inside of you. And what Jesus was saying was, it is better for you to have the Holy Spirit on the inside than it would to have me in the flesh. Now, if I'd have been one of his disciples at that time, I might would have said, yeah, but Jesus, if we don't have you in the flesh, how are we going to know what our next move is? It's not going to be quite as easy. And Jesus probably would have said, I understand that, but keep this in mind, even though you don't understand it is to your advantage to have me living on the inside. Now, 
that being true, it still leaves us sometimes in life, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in a job opportunity, whether it's a financial decision. It could even be something as simple as taking a vacation, buying a car, buying a house, making an investment, a major life decision, or what we might call not so major, but still it's concerning to us. We're trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do? And we say to God, I don't have a cloud, so I can't figure it out that way. I don't have Jesus in the flesh, so I can't visibly see where he's leading. So God, how can I, as a child of God, with the Holy Spirit living in me, know the next move that you have for me. So, in answer to that question, what I want to give you today, this is a super practical message today, at least I hope it will be, I want to give you four questions that you can ask when you are trying to make a decision and when you are trying to know God's will for your life. And so, question number one, if you picked up a bulletin, you can just fill in the blanks. If not, you can just stay with me and we'll have some things on the screen and uh, we'll try to try to walk through these four questions. Question number one, most important question of all to begin with anyway, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Anytime we're trying to make a decision, we have to start there because one thing we know, the cloud would never lead us where the Word of God prevents us from going. And so sometimes a person may say, well, you know, in my heart, I just think this is what I'm supposed to do. I just think God is leading me in this direction. You may have a, a man who works at a particular place and a lady who works there, and they work closely together, and maybe they really have good chemistry, and they really enjoy being around each other. And so the man maybe goes to see one of his friends and says, you know, I just really feel like God has brought the two of us together, and... Uh, you know, I think maybe we should hook up and become, uh, begin a relationship. Well, the only problem with that, in that scenario, the man is married to somebody else, and so is the lady. So they're sitting there thinking, well, I just feel in my, life, in my heart this is what I'm supposed to do, and yet the Bible absolutely would forbid that. And so we always have to begin by saying, what does the Bible say? Let me give you a scripture verse. It's a familiar verse, but in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What does a lamp do? What does a light do? Shows us the next step. It doesn't show us 20 miles down the road, but it shows us the next step that we should take. And so we should always begin and say, God, what does the Bible say? Is there anything in the Bible that would clearly prohibit me from doing this? And I'll tell you something else, at least to me, that's interesting about the Bible. Because I think there are a lot of sincere Christians out there, and they really want to know God's will. And they do read their Bible, and they do pray, but somehow in their mind, they almost think the Bible is like a magic book. Or the Bible is like a code book, and there are secret subliminal messages, and, and that somehow God is going to, through some code, tell them what to do. Let me use this example. Let's play like a, somebody is trying to figure out where to work at Home Depot or Lowe's. They don't know which one, but they, they, like the, they, they need a job, and they think that'd be something that good in construction. They understand that, and they think, I'd like to get a job at one of those places. They interview at both places, fill out an application. A week later, both of those businesses call and say, we're offering you the job. And so now the man is trying to decide, okay, I have two opportunities, Home Depot and Lowe's. Which one should I do? Well, there's no cloud that's resting over one or the other. Jesus is not here in the flesh walking you into the parking lot of one or the other. So we've got the Holy Spirit 
We've got the Bible. Now, let's just play like a well-meaning person says, okay, I really want to know God's will. And in his Bible reading one day, he's reading the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. And the person says, well, that's it right there. It's Lowe's. God has spoken to me through the Great Commission. Well, now that's not, you can't read the Bible like that. I mean, like if you read another verse, it says, and then at the end of the day, all the disciples went home. Home. It's Home Depot. That's where I'm supposed to go. No, the Bible's not a magic book, and it's not a code book, but the Bible, I'll tell you a way you could read the Bible on a situation, maybe not Home Depot and Lowe's, but if you're trying to decide, here you live in Pasadena, you live in the Houston area, and you have a job opportunity in Austin. And so you're trying to decide, well, God, is it your will for me to stay in the Houston area? You're with me to go to Austin. What would you have me to do? And so you get your Bible in the morning, and you say, well, today I'm reading in Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, and you read this. Now, this is not code, what I'm about to demonstrate here. This is not a magic thing like the Home Depot and Lowe's. You're just reading this in your Bible. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So Abraham departed and went out to a land that he didn't know anything about. Now, you read that, if you're thinking about moving to Austin, and you, if the Spirit of God, now just because you read that doesn't mean you're supposed to go to Austin, by the way, okay? But when you read that, if the Spirit of God takes that, and what the old preachers used to would say, if the Spirit of God quickens that in your heart. In other words, if the Spirit of God makes that passage resonate with you, and it's kind of like this passage just jumps off the page, and it's the Holy Spirit saying, just like I led Abraham from the known to the unknown, so I am leading you from the known to the... If, you, if your Spirit bears witness with that, that could be how the Holy Spirit would use the Bible. But the main thing I want to say on this point is we're trying to know what to do. What does the Bible say? Does it prohibit it? Or is the Holy Spirit, maybe in another way, using the Bible to confirm, guide, direct, or lead you in the way that he would have you to go? That's question number one. Question number two is equally interesting, and that is this. What do circumstances seem to be saying? And the reason I say what do circumstances seem to be saying is because sometimes we can't tell what circumstances are saying. But if you'll turn to Acts chapter 16, this may be the best example that I know of in the whole Bible about somebody who was trying to know God's will. It's the Apostle Paul. And what he was trying to figure out is, where am I supposed to preach the gospel? And so his heart was right. He's trying to do the right thing. And in Acts chapter 16 and in verse number 6... Here's what we read. Now, Paul is, is moving in one direction or another. Remember this about God. God steers moving ships. In other words, God directs the lives of his children who are pursuing his will and are trying to do the right thing, open to walking through whatever door God may lead them through, even if God's not leading them to walk through that door. So God steers moving ships. And in verse number 6 of Acts 16, Luke is writing this, and Luke said, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region, and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Closed door. Paul saying, we're going to go preach there. Door gets closed, okay? Verse 7. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, 
but the Spirit did not permit them. Closed door number two. Paul must have been thinking, now what is this? Tried to go that way, door got closed. Tried to go this way, door got closed. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, Paul's had this vision, seems to be an open door. So what did Paul do? After he had seen the vision, immediately, Luke said, we sought to go to Macedonia. Now watch this, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Two doors closed, a vision takes place where Paul is invited to go to this Macedonia place to preach, and Paul used his brain, and he concluded that God was leading him there. And that's where he went, and he's on his second missionary journey, and obviously God was in that, and God blessed that. So when you're trying to make a decision, this is a, kind of a tricky part of that, because take, for example, the Home Depot Lowe's. Both doors are open. you got two open doors. So which one are you going to walk through? Well, a little more tricky there. In Paul's case, two doors closed, one door open, he walked through the open door, okay? Now, question number three kind of builds on question number two. We're beginning with the Bible. What does the Bible say? Is there anything in the Bible that will help me make this decision? Question number two, what do circumstances seem to be saying? Question number three, what does my inner circle say? My inner circle that is, those who know me best and love me most. That is, those who care the most about me. And all of us need an inner circle. Jesus had it. He had 12 disciples. That's an inner circle. But even within that 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John, who were the inner part of his inner circle. Peter, James, and John went with him up on the top, uh, Mount of Transfiguration, went with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. They were his confidants. They were his prayer partners, and they were his inner circle. And I'm telling you, you need an inner circle. If you're married, your spouse is certainly at the heart of your inner circle. Other family members, maybe a connection group leader, maybe somebody you work with, maybe a friend from high school. I've got a friend from high school. I may go three or four months and not talk to him. He called me, or I'll call him, and we pick up like we left off. He's in my inner circle. Now, I don't see him like I used to, but we know each other's heart, and he's a, he's a treasured friend. So everybody needs an inner circle. I don't mean 30 or 40 people, but you need six, eight, nine people, maybe fewer than that, who could be your inner circle. Now, if you'll turn to the book of Proverbs, I want us to do this fairly quickly because if I have time, I'm kind of preaching fast, because if I have time, I want to tell a story at the end of this sermon that I just chose not to tell in the first sermon. And today during the worship time, I just was feeling led, get, get to the end and tell that story. And I know some of you just pray and I'll get to the end, right? But I want to get to the end and then I want to tell the story. We're not at the end yet. But Proverbs chapter 11, talking about counsel, asking other people's opinion. What do you think I should do? Well, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In other words, there's a biblical principle here that when we're trying to make decisions, as we seek out the opinions and counsel and advice of other Christians, there's safety in that because it's, you know, sometimes we may get a wild idea or something and, and God may use somebody else to say, no, that's not right. Now go to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 22, because we get the same phrase here. I just want you to see it again. 15:22. Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. 
Something about getting other people's opinion that will help you. Go to chapter 24. Because in verse number 6 of the 24th chapter, same thing. For by wise counsel you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors there is safety. And so in the Bible, seeking counsel is a big deal. And I've got to be honest with you. I've always made this a big deal in my life, sometimes to a fault. Sometimes I will, I mean, I sometimes ask people, you know, that maybe not even in my inner circle, I don't even know them that well, but I so believe in this principle of getting godly counsel. Other people can, I may have a blind spot. Somebody else can see that. And so we want to ask counsel and kind of just gather their opinions. Now, as wonderful and biblical and wise as it is, to reach out to others and try to get their opinion on things, there are two things you need to remember when it comes to seeking counsel from somebody else. Number one, the person you're seeking counsel from is not always going to be right. Now think about that. You're not always right, are you? I mean, I'm not always right. And so when you go to seek counsel from somebody, listen to what they say. But remember this, they're not always going to be right. And the second thing I've learned about seeking counsel from others, especially if you're seeking counsel from multiple people, they're not always going to agree with each other. They're going to have a different opinion. This person is going to say, well, I think you should do this. And this person will say, well, I think, have you considered that? And so there have been times in my life trying to make a decision, my inner circle is conflicted. And they're not in agreement with each other. And so I'm trying to figure out, well, now, God, what am I supposed to do? I'm more confused now than I was before I started asking all these people what their opinion is. That leads to question number four. And question number four is this. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you through the presence or the absence of peace? Now, see, this is why Jesus said it is to your advantage that you have the Holy Spirit living in you as opposed to having me right next to you. Because the Holy Spirit living in us, He leads us, and He leads us by the presence of peace, but He also leads us by the absence of peace. Tremendous verse I want you to see uh, on the screen. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. Look at this. And let the peace of God rule in your heart. Say that with me. And let the peace of God rule in your heart. Say it by yourselves. I want you to really say it. I want you to memorize that on on three. One, two, three. Okay. That word rule literally means umpire. That's baseball season, making the home stretch, playoff run, so on. We all love the Astros. Let's play like Jose Altuve is up to the plate today, and he's getting ready to watch the pitch coming in. So here he stands at home plate, and he's, he's ready to, the pitch comes in, and Altuve is saying, it's low and outside, I'm not swinging, it's not a strike. So he lets it go. The pitcher throws the ball, he releases it, he's watching it, he's saying, man, that's on the money, that's a strike. So you've got the pitcher saying it's a strike, you've got Altuve saying it's a ball, it's low and outside. Think about this, if it were left up to the two of them, they never could agree with that. Right? They're going to have differences of opinion. So Major League Baseball has employed an umpire. And the umpire stands behind home plate, and he's going to call it a ball or a strike. And whatever he says is what it is. It doesn't matter what the pitcher thinks. It doesn't matter what Altuve thinks. And it doesn't matter what we think watching the thing at at, at home. What matters is what does the umpire say. Now, let the peace of God rule umpire in your hearts. What is the Bible saying? 
when you're trying to make a decision, you're going through the process. Okay, there's nothing in the Bible that would prohibit this, so I'm, I'm clear on the Bible. Okay, circumstances, I'm getting mixed signals here because I've got multiple open doors maybe. So I'm seeking out counsel. Well, that's been helpful. I've learned some things by talking to others, but my inner circle is not in agreement. My inner circle is conflicted. And so now what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to take the fourth question on this test, this fourth-step process. And that is, is the Holy Spirit leading you through the presence or the absence of peace? The umpire, the final call, is not what your Sunday school teacher says, your connection group leader, your friend at work, or, or any. The final call is, what do I feel peaceful about in my heart? I've noticed in my life, and I know you have too, when I'm about to make a decision that is not the right decision for me, I begin to lose my peace, and I become, I become nervous or jittery or agitated or uneasy and restless in my spirit. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to me through the absence of peace, saying, John, don't do that or don't do that now. Time's not right. Conversely, I'm trying to make a decision, and I think about this option, and I think, I've gone through the process, the questions, and I think, but you know what? I have peace. Deep down in my heart, there's no, I'm not agitated. I'm very peaceful in my spirit. What is that? That is the Holy Spirit. That is the umpire. And he is saying, John, this is how you know how to follow a cloud that you cannot see because in your heart, I'm giving you peace. Now, you still with me? Say amen. Now, if you would have been in the first service, the sermon would have just ended right there. Don't you wish you'd have been in the first service? But I want to tell you how I experienced this in my own life. And for some reason, in the first, I had time in the first service. I just didn't feel led to tell it. I feel led to tell it in this service. When I, was, when I graduated from Baylor in 1992, and I went to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, and I've told you before, when I first went to Southwestern, I went through a time of loneliness, discouragement. I wouldn't call it depression but I was in the zip code of depression because I had left everybody I was close to back in Waco. I was in Fort Worth. I didn't know anybody, and I just felt, for the first time in my life, I really felt like I was out on an island. I felt like I was isolated. Well, it took about four months for me to work through that, and God really helped me and taught me some tremendous lessons that have become the foundation of much of my faith even today. And so those four months were beneficial for me, even though they were very difficult. But at the end of those four months, I came out of that. Whatever I was in, I came out of it. And I became very happy. And I became extremely content living in Fort Worth. So from the spring of 1993 until the spring of 1995, I was the happiest person that you have ever known living in Fort Worth. Now, I sent our media guys some pictures. Last. I want to show you the apartment that I was living in because I think you will be impressed. By, there it is right there. That was my apartment. Now, I want to show you the inside, very small apartment. I want you to, a picture's worth a thousand words. There's my apartment. I look at it, and I think of some of the things God taught me while I was living up there. It touches my heart. But in that apartment, you see the kitchen table, you see the living room. The apartment's so small, the kitchen and the living room was the same room. But for, those, for two years, I was the happiest person. If I lived in a 10,000-square-foot house, I could not possibly have been as happy and content as I was living in that apartment for those two years. Okay, you can take that picture down. Well, 
In the spring of 1995, I began to get jittery, and I began to get restless, and I began to lose my contentment and my peace. And up until that point, for the two years up to that, my parents would come visit me, Joel would come visit me, friends would come see me, and I would talk to people on the phone, and I would say things like this. I would say, you know, I think I could live in this apartment for the rest of my life. And I'm sure people looked at it and said, you've lost your mind. Something that small. But I was just happy and very content. And I had planned on, when I finished my master's degree, doing a Ph.D. In fact, I was already pursuing, I was already applying for the Ph.D. program. I knew the professors. Uh, I, I think that I would have gotten in the program, and so it would have all been fine. But in about March of 1995, my peace is gone. In that apartment that I had loved so much, I'm just thinking, i got to get out of here. And the city of Fort Worth, I absolutely loved living in Fort Worth. I just thought, it doesn't seem like home anymore. I got it. Something's changed. Well, I was working on a church staff outside of Dallas and had a great job there. Lost my peace in that, too. Wrote a letter. I resigned. I just said, I appreciate the opportunity. I don't think I wrote a letter. I just told whoever hired me, hey, listen, I've enjoyed working here, but I think my time has come to an end. And I think I should leave. What had happened there at that church, they had hired a young pastor. And I had never even met him. And I knew he was going to be good. And I was young. And I just thought, I don't know. I, I think I probably need to get leave and let him come in. And so I just lost my peace. Well, I was also applying to the Ph.D. program. No, I had no peace about that. I thought, I can't stay in this apartment three, five, three to four more years to work on a Ph.D. I wrote a letter to the committee. And I said to them, I can't explain it. But I don't think that I'm supposed to get this degree. And I said, thank you for considering my, me for it. And I was friends with the professors. And I said, but if you'll, with some of them, I said, but if you'll just remove my name from consideration. I dropped out of the program before I ever started. So here I am, March, April, 1995. No job. No future in the Ph.D. program. Absolutely no peace in that apartment. And I'm thinking, God, what am I going to do now? Well, I thought, well, maybe I could go to another seminary and get a degree there. Maybe I could get another master's degree here. I was trying to figure the whole thing out. Well, about that time, my dad calls, and he said, John, he said, our student minister, John Litton, John and his wife Terry were here a few weeks ago, has move, is moving to New Mexico. And he said, could you come? He said, it's not even my idea. Here's what he said to me. He said, it's not even my idea for you to come to Pasadena. I'm not opposed to it, but it's not my idea. But there are some leaders in the church who have suggested to me that you come down here for the summer at least, work with the students, take them to camp, get to know them. I already had some relationships from a day camp I'd worked out here before that. And he said, would you be willing to pray about it? Well, sure. So I prayed about it. Well, as I was praying about this, my major professor at Southwestern Seminary, a godly man named Malcolm McDowell, I had been his grader, and I was very close to Dr. McDowell. And he, I was in contact with him during this whole thing. He was strongly encouraging me, John, get your Ph.D., get your Ph.D., you're young. It will never be this easy to get your, finish your education as it is right now. Get your Ph.D. Somebody else in my inner circle that I was extremely close to uh, lived in another state, but, I mean, part of my inner circle advised me not to come to Pasadena and said, John, I don't think you should do that. Well, that was a little conflicting. And my dad was 
was offering me a job down here, but he wasn't twisting my arm. He was saying, I think you should pray about, I think you should pray about this. I think it might be, it'd be good for the church to help us through the summer and kind of give you a break. You can figure out what you want to do, and then you can, you know, you can go. Well, during that process, I thought about it. I prayed about it. Going through the steps, let me ask you a question. The Bible. Is there a verse in the Bible that says, stay in Fort Worth or go to Pasadena? There's not a verse in the Bible that says that. I've heard preachers say, every question you have is answered by the Bible. Well, I appreciate that pastor's love for the Bible, but that statement's not true. The Bible's not telling you whether to stay in Fort Worth or go to Pasadena. That's just not a true statement. That's giving principles, but not answering that question. Okay, so the Bible didn't answer the question. What about doors opening? Well, had a door in Pasadena, but I had other doors that were plenty wide open for me. What about counsel from others? Well, my inner circle was conflicted. My major professor, stay in Fort Worth, get your PhD. Somebody else in my inner circle, I don't think you should go to Pasadena. Others saying, no, I think this might be a good move for you. So my, my inner circle was conflicted, and I couldn't, I couldn't really lean on them. The only thing I had left was the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? He leads us. How? By the presence of peace, by the absence of peace. Here's all I knew at that time. I'm 25 years old. Here's all I knew at that time. And I remember even then, knowing enough of the Bible to know about this analogy with a cloud, I knew this. I knew beyond the shadow of any doubt, as much as part of it broke my heart, I knew that the cloud had moved off of that apartment in Fort Worth. The cloud that had been there settled in and provided me, I knew the cloud was gone. So now I'm trying to figure out where's the cloud leading me. Door opens in Pasadena. I pray about it. I go through the process. Even though my inner circle is conflicted, I begin to have peace. In my spirit, I begin to think the cloud of God's presence has not only lifted off of Fort Worth, but to the best of my ability to determine it, the cloud of God's presence is traveling south on Interstate 45, and it is resting over the First Baptist Church in Pasadena. And I can remember then thinking, God, I never thought I'd work on a staff with my dad. I never thought that I would be doing something like this, certainly at this time. But God, as best as I can understand, the cloud has moved from Fort Worth to Pasadena. And I'm thankful that it did. And I'm thankful the cloud's been here for me for a long time now. Now, tell that story today to say this, to make this point. When you're trying to determine God's will, you're trying to figure out exactly what I was trying to figure out in 1995. Where's the cloud? How can I follow a cloud that I cannot see? I couldn't look out there on the Interstate 45 and say, well, there it goes. No. Inner circle conflicted. Bible didn't speak to it. Jesus said, it is to your advantage (laughs) that you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, even over having me in the flesh next to you. Because when it comes to making decisions, the Holy Spirit is the umpire. He gets the last word. He will never violate a biblical principle, certainly not, but he will lead you through the absence of peace, The presence of peace, circumstances, doors opening, and so on. And what God is saying to all of us today, if we will follow peace. One of the dearest friends I've ever had in all my life, I think she's fixing to be 87 years old this fall. 
Here's her expression to me. And it has been since 2004 when I got to know her. She says this, John, trying to know what to do, trying to make a decision, trying to determine God's will for your life. Here's her two words, follow peace. And that's what I say to you today. When you're trying to figure out God's will in your life, if you will go through all these questions, but when you get to number four, if you will follow peace, I promise you this, the Holy Spirit will never lead you wrong. Amen.